Hello, welcome to Feed, Play, Love, the bite-sized podcast for parents. I'm Siobhan Hunt. This is a show all about parenting. I speak to experts and carers about everything from fussy eating, toddler behavior, sleep and more. An American author and cultural critic, Neil Postman, once said that technological change is not additive, it is ecological. A new technology does not merely add something, it changes everything. And an example of this could be that once it seemed impossible to make a baby without having sex. But today, assisted reproduction makes life possible in a number of ways. We have IVF, gift, surrogates. Families today come in all shapes and sizes. But what is the future of reproductive technology? And what are the ethical implications of the choices we're making today? Right now in Australia, there are discussions about the future of reproductive technology, specifically whether or not fertility treatments should allow the inclusion of three sets of DNA. Ainsley Newson is an Associate Professor of Bioethics at Sydney University, and Sean Murray is the CEO of Mito Foundation. They are both here to discuss the pros and cons of this kind of reproductive technology. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Ainsley, most people understand fertility treatments as being sperm from a man, an egg from a woman. Um, however, those elements are retrieved and combined. How does DNA come into the picture? DNA is really important, obviously, although it's not everything. And for the most part, we get most of our genetic characteristics from DNA that's contained in the nucleus of a cell. But we also have some special things in our cells called mitochondria, and they have their own genome. And that genome is different from the genome in our nucleus. And when it comes to reproduction, an an egg cell or an oocyte has lots and lots of mitochondria. Sperm don't have very many, and they don't really get a look in. Okay. So, Sean, what does this kind of technology mean for people with mitochondrial disease? So, the technology we're talking about is is something called mitochondrial donation. Uh, And what it can mean for people, some people with some types of mitochondrial disease, is it gives them the possibility of greatly reducing their chance of having a child that will inherit the mitochondrial disease from them. Ainsley, do we have people who object to using this kind of technology? Do we know who they are? Because I know you've been in public discussions for a little while, not long, but (laughs) for a while now. Who are the people who object to this kind of use of three types of DNA? Yes. Um, Well, we haven't really talked about the three types of DNA yet. Do you want, should we just quickly talk about that first? (laughs) Sure. So as Sean's explained, sometimes people have some issues with their mitochondria. They're called mutations or gene changes or variations. That's some of the terms we use. And so some families where mitochondrial disease is present in their mitochondria, it means that if they pass these mitochondria onto their children, they will have or they will go on to develop mitochondrial disease as well. And so there is a very new reproductive technology called mitochondrial donation that involves doing some manipulation to human eggs to basically swap out the mitochondria, although we need to be very clear that it's not just sort of sucking them out and putting new ones in. It's quite a big thing to do to an egg and it effectively means that you're changing the nucleus. So you're sort of donating a chassis to another person. And so that's how you get to having three types of DNA because the child who will be born as a result of this technology will have nuclear DNA from their male 
parent, uh, whether that's a social parent or just a genetic parent. They'll have uh, nuclear DNA from the woman who intends to be their social mum. And then they'll have mitochondrial DNA from a woman who has chosen to donate her oocytes to enable that child to be born. So basically the goal is somehow using a very, very sophisticated technology to take away the mutated DNA from that person's egg and then substitute it with some healthy mitochondrial DNA. Now, I've done that really long-winded explanation. I've completely forgotten the question that you asked me. Well, let's forget that question because I, I have it. Yeah, you jump you in. Because one of the things you said, Ainsley, was we're changing the nuclear DNA or the mm. nucleus. Oh, I didn't mean to no, say that. No, but I think that's a really important point is that the idea here is we're not changing the nucleus or the nuclear DNA as a non scientist here in the room you know we get half the half the dna from mum half from dad mm. and that sits in the nucleus of the cell and that nucleus is what we're retaining here but we're shifting it into a host egg that has healthy mitochondria among other things of mm. course so um, and i think that's the really important point the whole aim of this is that we still end up with a child who has the nuclear dna from their biological mother and father but has healthy mitochondria and therefore healthy mitochondrial DNA from a donor. Okay, well, well, getting back to the basics, Sean, like we've been talking about mitochondrial disease, but mm. lots of people probably don't yeah. know exactly what that means in a family's life. If you were taking the example, let's say it's a young couple, one, the mother, let's say, has a mitochondrial disease, what would, might that look like for her and what does this technology potentially mean for them? The thing is that... I guess the one common thing we can say is that everybody's different. <laughs> and so mitochondrial disease can be dev is devastating. It's a progressive disease. It gets worse over time. Ultimately, mitochondrial disease can be fatal. So if a, a woman is living with mitochondrial disease, there's a lot of question about whether she might even have the capacity to have children physically, um, what that might mean for her long-term health and all that sort of thing. So if a woman has mitochondrial disease but is healthy enough to consider having children and to be able to have children, the prospect of passing that on to her child can be a massive burden. Is it like an autoimmune disease in the way? How does it... Yeah. I'm, I'm really wary of explaining this to the CEO of the Mito Foundation, <laughs> but I'm going to have a go because I think both Sean and I have been up to our eyeballs in this debate and I think it can be sometimes quite hard for us to come back up to the surface again when we're down right, in the trenches down. all the time. But um, a way that I hear it get talked about is that it's problems with energy as well. And so, as Sean has said, there are myriad symptoms. But basically, mitochondria are sort of known as the part of the cell that's responsible for energy generation. And so when your cells can't generate energy, it has effects throughout your body. Like almost every bodily system can be affected. But say, people that I've met who live with mitochondrial disease, they can have problems with their hearing, they can be very tired, and so a big fundraising effort for the Mito Foundation is Stay in Bed Day, which I love. I'm totally on board with that. <laughs> um, but also they do a thing called the Bloody Long Walk because lots of people with Mito disease can't do a really big walk. And so lots of other people who want to support people living with Mito disease do that too. But ultimately, it's any bodily system that can be affected. It, it comes across clinically in lots of different ways. And that's a problem as well because it can take people a long time to get diagnosed. And so it can just be this thing that's in your family Everybody's sort of becoming unwell, but we don't really know why. It's almost random because of some of the technicalities of how mitochondria get inherited. They don't get inherited in the same way as standard genes do. And so 
there can be one person in a family that has one set of symptoms and someone else who has a different set. And so a really common theme around families who live with mitochondrial disease is what we call a diagnostic odyssey. It can take them a long time to get to a diagnosis. So even just getting to that point of having that information Mm. is really important. Okay, so obviously the technology is new, but it looks very hopeful and it could have great benefit Mm. for lots of families who, who, or couples who want to have a family to try and um, have their children, have healthy children, which is a great thing. So going back a step, um, you spoke about the way scientifically it's all combined. Generally speaking, we know that there are three kinds of DNA. So what are the objections? Mm -hmm. Are they purely ethical or are there also um, physical risks, I guess, to starting to use this kind of technology? There are both ethical concerns about this technology, also some ethical defences or benefits of the technology, but there are also some scientific uncertainties. And I guess that those two things actually come together because a relevant ethical question is, well, what level of safety is an appropriate level to say, okay, we can go forward with this? And then as a part of that question, who's who should be the one that gets to make the call? Is it up to regulators? Is it up to families to say, look, we've weighed this up. We're comfortable to go ahead. The only alternative for us is to either not have children to try and adopt, which is really hard in Australia, to use donor eggs, which is also really hard in Australia, or to go to, you know, take our chances and potentially have a child who will go on to develop mitochondria disease. I don't know if you want me to unpack all of the ethical concerns at this stage, but I'd say some of the headline ones are the one that we've already talked about, which is putting together an egg that has a genetic complement from three separate individuals, although the mitochondrial component is smaller than the nuclear component. And so a lot of the academic fights that go on about this are around, well, should we count? Does counting matter or the fact that it's there at all? And what does the mitochondrial DNA do in yeah. terms of personal characteristics if anything yeah yeah so, so um, could I mean you even I mean just on that one mm. ethical consideration could you even foresee there being some kind of issue with custody in that regard like I, we talk yeah, about I've been asked that in a few media debates I, my answer to this is no because I think at the moment we already regulate how we use reproductive products in Australia. Uh, so we have laws already in every state at least that I can think of that regulate what happens when someone donates a reproductive product to another person. And while things like access and things like that, sometimes they're the subject of individual negotiation, I can't see this type of technology raising any questions that we haven't already faced and that we haven't already regulated in a really sound way. It's not quite the same, but if you think about egg donation, Mm. if you go through that process, I don't, I mean, there may be, but I haven't heard of any cases of someone turning around and saying that. Yeah. I mean, it probably has. But do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. you, you, it is part of the process of having a child with other elements. Yeah. I mean, the biggest question, which is actually a slightly separate one, or at least I think it's an important question, is uh, whether the person donating the egg to be used in mitochondrial donation should remain anonymous. And there's been some debate about that in the United Kingdom because they've taken a route that is slightly different from standard donation of reproductive products. Australia hasn't made a decision about that yet. It's one of the questions that the government is considering. For what it's worth, my personal view is that I think 
we absolutely should be acknowledging the not insignificant process that a woman goes through in order to donate these products. It's not that uh, she sees herself as the genetic parent of the child who is born, but I think there is a connection there. Her donation makes the difference between whether a child is born who will go on to develop mitochondrial disease or not. And the families may wish to just say thank you or may wish to have that person in that child's life as a special individual or even just allow the child to contact that person once they're older. I think we know that keeping secrets, whatever kind, in families is a generally a bad idea and that openness and transparency is, is a really positive approach. It's such an interesting question because even moving beyond this um, idea of using reproductive technology to try and eradicate different illnesses, mm. there's also this idea, I, I think I saw an article in the New York Times about a boy who'd been conceived through IVF who had discovered or a woman who discovered that they had something like 36 siblings Mm, or something like in that vein and it's sort of a question that you don't think of when you're trying to have a family in terms of how will that child feel will it even matter to have that many siblings it kind of overwhelms Mm. me to think that I could have (laughs) 36 siblings I don't know. I learned learned recently that there are actually some safeguards in place mm -hmm. around particularly from well I guess it it covers both for um, egg donors and sperm donors but I think the propensity of you know of sperm donation would suggest there could be you know could be utilised for many different many you know multiples of births. But there's actually some regulations or some controls in place that in any Australia. sperm donor any any sperm donor donor is limited to ten offspring. I think it depends on the exact state right. in Australia, but yeah. certainly situations like that in a well regulated context right. like Australia should not be happening. Places like the US tend to have a lighter touch regulatory system and sometimes unfortunately also clinicians go a bit mm-hmm. off the grid mm-hmm. again I think Australia highlight is a very well regulated environment uh, you need you know professional licenses to offer these technologies there's a big code of practice there's authorities whose responsibility it is to oversee this kind of thing so I think at least particularly for mitochondrial donation, but in ART or reproductive technology in Australia more generally, we shouldn't end up with situations like the one you've just described with Mm. a person finding they have, you know, potentially hundreds of siblings out there. So with this particular debate then, is with the three sets of DNA, are any of the ethical discussions around what you just described then in terms of what does this mean for society in general in terms mm-hmm. of how we create? Well, I think particularly when we look at mitochondrial DNA, the, the, the quirk of it is that we get 100% of our mitochondrial DNA from our mother who got 100% of her mitochondrial DNA from her mother. So, in fact, we already exist with the same mitochondrial DNA, arguably, to every maternal sibling. And that's been used to to trace genetic haplogroups and how we've migrated as a human species out of Africa, etc., this mitochondrial DNA. So I I don't think there's a, a real concern or a real issue around sharing this particular type of our DNA with others because we already do. And there's certainly not, as I understand it, any medical issue around it apart from the the mitochondrial diseases that that you know people might might carry but mm. unlike nuclear dna if um you know when we look at people who are perhaps very closely related who might have children it does increase greatly the risk of nuclear um, dna or originating diseases because you know ah, we're not yes. spreading that gene pool far enough but that doesn't come into play with mitochondrial dna mm. so from those perspectives i don't think 
there are questions. But I think there's something else that we haven't mentioned yet, uh, which is important to recognise, which is if this technology is made legal in Australia, and this isn't something we can just click our fingers and do tomorrow, it's actually quite a complex process to change the law because of how we regulate this in Australia. But um, it will, the changes that we make to a cell are not only kind of quite technically invasive to a, a, an egg cell, they, the change that it results, which is putting together a new genome effectively, although not tinkering at the level of DNA, and I think that's an important point to raise, is that if that person is a female who is born as a result, because of the way mitochondria are inherited, the changed genome will then go on to be inherited by future generations as well. And so this will be the first time that we are making a technology like that legal under regulation. And the UK is the only other country in the world that has made that specifically legal so far. So speaking as a complete layperson Mm -hmm. who's probably watched too many science fiction movies, is the question then as well about what doors we're opening, that once we go through them, we can't shut them, regardless of the reason Mm -hmm. we're going through. Mm -hmm. So we could be saying, you know, we're we're going in a positive direction because we're helping to eradicate types of a disease. But is it potentially leading to... um, I don't even know what it could be leading to. Armageddon. We talk about this in, in, well, it gets talked about a lot in the media at least and sometimes by us too as the slippery slope to designer babies. (laughs) So uh, there's a lot in there and I think one is, well, how slippery is the slope? Are we standing at the top of it unable to get to the bottom? Is what it's at the bottom of the slope actually bad or might it be okay? And I think we have a lot more debate to have on that question. And in saying that, you know, what even is a designer baby? I think what I would keep coming back to here is that this is a very specific technology, mitochondrial donation, that is designed for a fairly small fraction of families who wish to not pass on a really debilitating, life-limiting genetic condition that can present at lots of different points in life. Now, there are some who do argue that it is actually much harder to separate that kind of technology from what we might call genetic engineering, which is tinkering at the level of DNA, sort of chopping out genes and putting new ones in, you know, designing in special features that weren't there before, etc. I personally... Gattaca, that's right. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Movie, yes, <laughs> and, you know, that all of those technologies th- th- via different routes because we can now find out about the genetic makeup of an embryo much more cheaply and with higher accuracy than we have at any point in the past. But I think that is potentially a separate question to this one. This is about a technology of uh, changing an embryo to avoid passing on mitochondrial disease. So for my money, I think we can regulate to allow this and not necessarily allow anything else as well, assuming that we don't think that's okay at this point in time. But I do think we also do need to look at what's the rationale here, what message is it sending, what, you know, in, t- in terms of consistency, are we also potentially condoning as a result? So some academics in my field, which is bioethics, do say, you know, we need to be extremely careful before. And I don't, I think in Australia at the moment, the debate is being held very carefully. So there's been a government inquiry last year, a Senate inquiry, uh, National Health and Medical Research Council or NHMRC is currently undertaking a big inquiry too, and will report back to the health minister either later this year or early next year. So there's a lot of very structured and careful debate happening already. And I think that the the difference of the mitochondria and the mitochondrial DNA 
in this way does mean it is very different. We're not, as Ainsley said, we're not tinkering at the genetic level. We're not changing DNA within a, a genome. We're swapping out one bad genome with a healthy one and a genome is our collection of DNA in its little parcel and I think you know we've heard of things like CRISPR and 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 those things that can go in and snip out a bad piece of DNA and glue cut and paste in a healthy bit of DNA this is different to that Um, and so I think that that gives us confidence that this can be controlled and can be regulated in isolation and doesn't open the door for other things. I'm going to ask a really obvious question here. Um, so that there's a, as you say, you've been in a lot of public discussions, you've been talking at a very academic level as well as um, ethical, etc. But as the head of the Mito Foundation, mm. how do you feel about both the, the discussions now and, and how are people who are part of your organisation sort of responding to the discussion and Having Ainsley having said it's still quite new, how much um, hope is being placed in this technology? Yeah, well, one of the things I keep coming back to is the longer we keep talking about it, the less likely it will continue to be new. Um, <laughs> and I say that somewhat facetiously. Look, I think so. Mitochondrial diseases are horrible. Uh, you know, families who've been, whose lives have been touched by mitochondrial disease, and you know, my family's included in that. We've seen, I've seen firsthand the devastation it can cause, um, both with family members who've passed away, etc. I've also seen what it can do to people who uh, have a cloud of guilt and a cloud of worry over them about well, what's going to happen either to me or to my child or my children, and it happens across the world, across the the whole community of people who have mitochondrial disease. So there is no medicine. There's not a pill you can take to say, okay, well, you've got mitochondrial disease. Here, take this twice a day and that'll, you know, see how you go. There are some things you can do to help mitigate symptoms and manage symptoms, etc. But there's no treatment per se. So in the absence of a treatment, what this offers is, is a hope, a hope that they can, that this disease can be eradicated from a family forever. Mm. Um, and I mm. think that the the potential relief or the the aspiration towards this is, is, is palpable. It's very strong. Most of these families who would know that this is relevant to them would have experienced a terrible loss, a loss of a sibling, loss of a parent, or worse, loss of a child. Um, and then to be faced with the prospect of having, you know, of having lost a child, to then think, well, I want to have a family, but I don't want to do that again oh, or God, risk no. that. Mm-hmm. Mm. This, this offers... This offers immense hope, and so that's why it's it's very very important. Yeah. yeah. So I'll just add one thing. I I think Sean's testimony there is incredibly important and is a key driver. I think of the debate that's happening in Australia. What we also want to be clear on is that mitochondrial donation is not a cure for mitochondrial disease, and so at the same time. Uh, while offering this very specific, very technical reproductive technology to families who want it with no pressure to use it if they don't want to. At the same time, we need to obviously continue research into Mm. causes and treatments for mitochondrial disease because the vagaries of the reproductive lottery can mean that even sometimes people might have children without realising they're at risk of, Mm. of passing on mitochondrial disease. We also you know, we don't want to have this as a technology that f- people feel that they, they must use. Um, we also need to make sure that anyone who's born of a result of this technology does not become a media and scientific curiosity. So that's something we also spend quite a lot of time thinking about is what will life be like for the person who's born. And I think that explains 
some of the vagaries around what's happening in the UK, there is a, a sense of great control and protection of these families so that they're not becoming, you know, hooked up in some sort of media circus as well. So mm. Gosh, it's so interesting. We have to leave it there, though. Ainsley, Sean, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Ainsley Newson, Associate Professor of Bioethics at Sydney University, and Sean Murray, CEO of the Mito Foundation. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.